0: Keep your Bibles open this morning, if you would please, to the text that Kevin Knight read a moment ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 25. You know, you ask a pastor what his favorite text is, and he will probably tell you whatever text he happens to be studying that week. And I would have to say that is true i uh, studying this text this week as I stand before you this morning. This is probably my favorite Bible text. But you know what? By midweek, that will probably change again. But uh, anyway, I want to talk to you this morning about keeping the main thing the main thing. Keeping the main thing the main thing. And for those watching online this morning, I want to say that at the end of the service today, we will be uh, cutting off the video feed both in here and in the core because we have a special presentation from one of our young men in the church who has been appointed as a missionary by our international mission board. And he is going to talk to us just a moment about his assignment and how we can best pray for him. And because of where he is going in the world, we are not allowed to put out on video what he will be sharing with us. So I apologize to those at home who won't be able to hear some of his testimony But that is a requirement that uh, what we show about him, we have to uh, keep it offline. So uh, we'll hear a few moments of that at the end today. You know, several weeks ago, as we were gathered outside for our uh, 4th of July celebration, and I brought a message entitled, Remembering. And hopefully you remember the text of Scripture that morning. It was out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy is the second law because it repeats the law given in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. It's sort of a recap of what God has told the people. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land and Moses won't be going with with them. So the book of Deuteronomy is... Three discourses on the part of Moses to the children of Israel. Things to remember once they get in the promised land. If they forget these things that he reminds them of, it will be to their detriment. God will bring destruction to them like he had to other nations before them. And so over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy, they were told to remember. And then throughout the rest of Old Testament history, they had the feast, the festivals, I think of Passover, for instance, that they would do year in and year out, so they would always remember to keep the main thing the main thing. You know, I find a striking parallel between what happened to them in the Old Testament and their admonitions to remember with what I find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You know, God never wants his new covenant people called the church to forget that our deliverance, our salvation is only because of Jesus Christ and what he suffered on the cross. Amen? John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul said, Christ, our new Passover Lamb, has been slain. Folks, I can't think of a more important subject matter to address. I want you to understand the relevancy to your life right here today as you sit in this sanctuary because you and I need to remember that without the cross, we would still be alienated from God. We would have no hope, no salvation, no heavenly inheritance, no future to look forward to. So whatever topics we may teach on and preach on, it is the cross that gives our lives hope. Because again, without it, there would be no peace with God. And so over and over again, writing to the Corinthians in particular, Paul is telling them to remember the cross and remember what is major. Some of the minor things that they're dwelling on can fall by the wayside, but they can't afford to let this fall by the wayside. They were to remember the cross. Paul said to the uh, Galatians that he gloried in the cross. If there was any boasting he was going to do, it was going to be in the cross of Christ. I think of Jeremiah chapter 9. God said through Jeremiah, Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the powerful boast in their strength. If a man is to boast, let him boast in this that he knows me. It is through the cross that God has made it possible that we know him and can go into his presence. That's why Charles Spurgeon said that whatever text he preached on, he would, he would open his Bible, read that text, and as he began his message, he would try to make a beeline to the cross as quickly as he could. That seems to be what Paul is telling the Corinthians. Because as the church, they were to remember the cross as the special defining moment in their salvation history. One writer says that at Corinth they were a defiled church. They were defiled because they were too much like the world. They were guilty of sexual immorality. They were guilty of suing one another. Sometimes as you read 1 Corinthians you have to stop and remind yourself that Paul is actually talking about a church body. Some were guilty of drunkenness. On and on we could go talking about their vices. They were defiled. They were a divided church. If you were to go back in chapter 1 earlier, you could see how they were divided over personalities. They were forming little groupies around certain ministers and certain ministers that they knew about uh, forming these little groups around them. Some were saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos. And so they were forming all of these divisions in their church over that. Because they were divided, because they were defiled, they were a disgraced church. Instead of helping to spread the gospel, those at Corinth were actually hindering the spread of the gospel in many ways. I want to explain to you what drew me to this text this week. In the environment that we are in today, you can go online and quickly be disappointed by professing believers. The world was already divided before this whole virus mess. Now that's just added a whole new layer of division. And you see it coming into the church. Some are angry that any Christian would give a moment's notice to this virus. Others are angry that any Christian would not give attention to this virus. And what do both sides do? They air their grievances online for the world to see. I'm convinced that for many adults, online activity is the sandbox for adults. We used to talk about children fighting in sandboxes. Well, online platforms are the new sandbox for some adults. Not all, but some. And when you read uh, 1 Corinthians, particularly chapters 1 and 3, it's obvious what Paul thinks about professing Christians who divide over non-essentials. He outright calls them little children who need to grow up. Today, people advertise their immaturity online. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. Perhaps what people need to do most of all is to study Romans 14. Christians have differing thoughts, as Romans 14 says, on on matters that, that happen. And both sides need to do what they do out of faith and understand that the other side might be doing what they're doing out of faith. And so they need to extend grace to one another. But there's an even bigger point that paul makes to the corinthians here that i hope christians today will sit up and take notice of where pit where petty divisions take place the church is actually in danger of hindering the gospel message it's taking away from the gospel message of the cross and it's diverting attention to things that distract and even keep people from listening to the message of salvation. That's the real danger. And in chapter 3, Paul just comes right out and he says, the one who destroys God's temple, God will destroy. Now that's about as blunt as it gets, is it not? And so to a defiled, divided, disgraced assembly like they were at Corinth and like what we see more and more in the church today, the church at large, what's Paul's first admonition? Paul admonished them in verse 10 to be of the same mind and the same judgment. He wanted one thing to drive them. And what was that one thing? The cross. Keep the main thing, the main thing. In other words, keep all distractions and divisions away. Because they hurt the witness of the church. And they take away from what our real message to a lost and dying world is. First of all, he admonishes them in verse 17. We are to preach the cross. Look again at verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is wanting them to take a good long look at themselves. They need to follow his example. Go back to verse 2 a minute. He says, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul begins stating there in verse 2 that they are a sanctified people called to be saints. He's reminding them of that fact early on. They're not acting like saints, but that's what God has made them through Christ. And so the challenge for them, the challenge for us today is to become practically in everyday life what God has already made us positionally. Paul also begins this letter by stating that he knows that they've been enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge. This is an early allusion in 1 Corinthians to the debate about spiritual gifts that they were having that he will address more in chapters 12 to 14. He knows they are a gifted people as all Christians are. In verse 7 he states that they come short in no good gift. He also states that Christ Jesus will confirm his children to the end. We will all stand before him blameless one day. What a remarkable statement that is. Because they were anything but blameless at the moment. Paul is reminding them of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And one day when we stand before him, we will be blameless, and there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's not because of us. It's because of Christ. All the more reason to keep the message about Christ the primary thing. Now, after that kind of introduction, he reminds them of what they are to be about. They're to be about preaching the cross of Christ, they're to follow his example. You see, they're making life all about them. In verse 12, he says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. You take just about any disagreement people have in church, and who is it about? In some way or another, it is about them. They're making life about them. But in the church, life is about Jesus. Amen? We're to be careful that we don't make anything about us. Paul seems especially put out, as you keep reading here, that any would be claiming allegiance to him. He says, was Paul crucified for you? No. In verse 17, he states what his mission was, and it's a subtle reminder of what our mission is to be. Because again, after all, the church is born out of the shed blood of Christ. The cross is the heart of the gospel. And the church is born out of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Why would we not make a priority about the very thing that has made us the people of God? And you don't have to be slick about preaching the cross. He says that in verse 17. In verse 17 he says, Not with with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now some scholars believe the context there was, was about Athens, where Paul had just been before coming over to Corinth. He was there in Athens at the Areopagus debating with the town philosophers. And he got into some of their philosophy, their Greek philosophy. And when Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, some say he determined that he would never again take that approach. When he gets to Corinth, he says, he says, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Folks, we don't have to dress up the gospel. The gospel is sufficient. The gospel doesn't need fancy trappings attached to it. It is sufficient all by itself. And so what are you and I doing to preach the gospel? And to keep the main thing the main thing. And to talk about the cross. Preaching the cross doesn't mean standing up here. There's a limited amount of people in the world who do this. But in everyday life, you and I can preach the gospel, sharing Christ to those around us who do not know him. This year at your work, at school, at home, in your community, who do you need to be? sharing the gospel with, keeping the main thing the main thing. You know, in our lobby, we have those little books, Steps to Peace with God by Billy Graham. A couple of years ago, I took you through that series, the story, showing you how you can share the gospel just using the big redemptive themes of the Bible, not even having to memorize a lot of individual verses. And of course, you have your individual testimony that you can share. Church, we are to keep the main thing the main thing. We are to preach the gospel, and it's all of our responsibility. Because each one of us has little circles that we run in that the rest of us in here don't. You have your own little circles of influence. And don't become so accustomed to the message we talk about in here that you lose the wonder of it all. You know, that's a danger with the church too, isn't it? I'll never forget a little while back here fairly recently when I was preaching to men at the men's shelter over in Charlotte, how hungry those men were. And I mean, they literally sit on the edge of their seats listening. They've not lost the wonder of it all. Don't lose the wonder of it all. And as you and I keep the main thing, the main thing, and share the gospel, will everybody respond no? In fact, you'll probably have more reject than listen, but some will listen. And as Paul says here, those who listen will be saved. It's God's work in them. So again, he's telling them and he's telling us today, don't allow any distractions To hinder us from doing what God's called us to do. A second thing he points out here. We're to preach the cross because the cross is the power of God. In verse 18 he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I think of those scoffers who stood at the foot of the cross. And and what did they say? They hurled insults at Jesus and they were saying, He saved others, let him save himself. They didn't understand what God was doing there at the cross. They saw it as weakness. They interpreted it as defeat. Pilate didn't like it that Jesus wouldn't answer him. The Jewish leaders laughed and scoffed when he stood before them silent. The crowd thought he had been a hoax because he wouldn't come down off the cross. But little did they know that what they were witnessing as Jesus was hanging there on the cross, they were actually witnessing the power of God in action. The cross displayed God's power to deal with sin. You know, to some today who are trying to make it their own way, the cross still looks like defeat, doesn't it? People think they've got to add something to it. Paul warned the Galatians, if you add, if you try to add anything to it, you actually nullify it. But to those who are being saved, look look at look at what he says in verse 18. But to us who are being saved, it is the what? The power of God. Now, let me explain for a moment to you this morning why the cross is the power of God. We did a series recently on the book of Hebrews. Hopefully you remember that. Specifically, I think of Hebrews 10. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 is talking about how incomplete and insufficient all of those Old Testament sacrifices were. But yet, in order for us to be reconciled to God, this issue of sin had to be addressed. Because sin is man's greatest problem. No no matter what kind of religion man has, if it can't take away sin, it is of no value. So under the Old Covenant, God instituted a way for sin to be dealt with and covered until the perfect sacrifice could be made. Under that old covenant system, think about it, sin was covered, but it wasn't taken away completely. And so the priests were busy all day long, from dawn to sunset, slaughtering and sacrificing animals, but no matter how many sacrifices they made, or how often in the final analysis they were incomplete, it's not to say they were bad, because God instituted them and they were holy but they were incomplete they were only a shadow of the sacrifice that was to come because in reality they pointed forward to Jesus Those sacrifices in the Old Covenant had to be offered continually. That should have been a testimony in and of itself to the people, right? If they've got to be offered over and over and over again, then what does that mean? That each one of them on its own is not complete, not sufficient. This should have clicked with them. Now this brings up a question. Why did God do it this way, the Old Testament, with shadows? For one thing, to make God's people expectant, so that they would long for the reality and appreciate it even more when it arrived. Also to remind the people that the penalty for sin is death. As they witnessed the slaughter of all of those animals, they would be reminded that the wages of sin is death. And God did it, of course, to offer his people a covering for sin. But again, they were incomplete, insufficient. But Paul is saying here in verse 18, that is not how the cross of Christ is. To those who believe, it is the power of God unto salvation. Third thing I want you to see, we are to preach the cross because human wisdom can't save He begins talking about human wisdom in verses 19 and following. And what he's doing is he's referring back to Isaiah 29 and 2 Kings 19. And Paul is showing how a past event that divided men into two groups will be repeated by what men do with Christ. You think back to that past event. On the one hand, there was Judah believing that it would run down to Egypt for help against the Assyrians. And God assured them that their help would not come from Egypt. Their wisdom was tainted. Their wisdom was flawed in thinking they could go to Egypt for help. On the other hand, there was Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians who was going, thought he was going to conquer Judah. He bragged that Egypt would be no help to Jerusalem, that he would lay siege to Jerusalem. In fact, he bragged that he had Hezekiah shut up inside Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. But in one night, you remember what happened? In one night, God would deliver his people from no human help whatsoever. The Assyrians, in one night, regardless of all of their might, their wisdom, their strength, they awakened the next morning, and what had happened? God had sent an angel through their camp, and 185,000 of their soldiers were dead. Sennacherib took his troops, hightailed it back home. He got back home, and his own sons murdered him. Did the Israelites win that battle? No. They enjoyed the results of the victory, but they didn't fight for the victory. They didn't put their wisdom and strength up against Assyria's wisdom and strength. It was all God's doing. God destroyed the wisdom and the strength of the Assyrians who turned and ran back home. And what Paul is doing here is... is, is he's using that situation in their Old Testament history to tell what will happen to those who trust in man's wisdom and strength. There will come a day if you're trusting in man's wisdom and strength that you will suddenly be cut off, you will suddenly be destroyed, and there will be none to help you. It's an illustration that man and his pride, Man in his wisdom and strength has never been able to know God. Israel didn't come into existence by its own wisdom and strength. God called Abraham, Abram, who had apparently been a pagan. God saved him and called him to go to a, a new land, and God formed a nation through his descendants when those descendants went down in Egypt in bondage, and then God let them out. They didn't do that. They didn't open the Red Sea. They didn't defeat Pharaoh's army. God did it all. And so again, quoting Isaiah 29, Isaiah says... He's quoting from Isaiah here, where Isaiah says, Where are your wise men? That's what Paul is saying to them. God is saying, What are your plans? Where are your wise men? Where's your scribes and debaters of this age? And, and what, what he's saying is, Have you been able to save yourselves? And the answer is no. We have all this technology today. People are smarter today in so many ways. Have we secured peace? No, if anything else, the world is more divided now than it ever has been. How about with crime? Have we solved crime? Did you wake up this morning and read the headlines on the internet that suddenly, overnight, the problem of crime has been solved? It's gone. The plans of men, the wisdom of men, the wisdom of politicians have suddenly solved the crime issue. There's no crime, no poverty, nothing like that. Has that happened? No. We need to ask ourselves what's going on. The smarter we get, the richer we get, the more powerful we get, it seems like the worse off we're getting. It would seem like just the opposite would be happening. Folks, God is giving us a sermon on human pride and wisdom before our very eyes. And he's pointing out to us, we've not been able to solve any of our problems by our own wisdom or strength or intellect. And if we can't solve these problems that are right under our noses, what about the problems that are the deepest needs of of man? Man's purpose, sin, the afterlife, his emptiness inside. If we can't solve the problems in front of us, do you think we can answer those larger problems of life and solve those issues? Absolutely not. We are bankrupt. And so in verse 20 here, what's Paul say? God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. And then look at what he says in verse 21. The world in its wisdom has not to know God folks what a condemning verdict that is of the human race in the wisdom of God man's wisdom has not produced salvation God designed it this way and he's not made it so only the wise of this world can know him Paul goes on to say here, God was well pleased through the foolishness, the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In verse 23 he says, we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified is God's wisdom. What did the Jews want? The Jews wanted signs. What did the Greeks value? They valued wisdom. And the Greeks had made great strides in that category. Everybody knew this. That's why when looking for a household uh, servant or slave like they had back then, if possible, what would the Romans do? The Romans would try to get a Greek because of the Greeks' wisdom. In getting a Greek to be their household servant, they would have somebody who could tutor their children in education and somebody who could manage all the affairs of their household. In the ancient culture, the Greeks were known as those who were wise. And they loved philosophy. They had as many as 50 identifiable philosophical parties or movements and people would line up behind one of those. But again, Paul says here, man's wisdom has failed to produce salvation. In Romans 10, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? By the Word of God. 1 Peter 1 says you've been born again not by perishable seed but by imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It is the preaching of the cross that God uses to save men and women and boys and girls. It's the cross. It's through the preaching event that God uses that to encounter people. And we need to remember that God has purpose to use the foolishness of preaching. That's one of the exciting things about preaching. You never know the responses that are going to result from the preaching of God's word, and it's exciting to see what God does through the preaching of his word. There's always a surprise to it. Then as we keep preaching, God uses that same word that brought people to Him through faith in Christ. He uses that same word preached to disciple people and make us strong in our faith. And so folks, every time we gather together around God's word, you know what needs to be our prayer? Oh God, open my eyes, open my heart, open my ears that I might behold wondrous things from your word. So you see, folks, nothing, nothing must be allowed to hinder the message. God's saving message. Petty divisions, online activity, clinging to personalities, worldly desires, all of these things will take away from the message and hinder the message. Church, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And don't let anything take away from that. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, in each of our hearts we can remember that word preached Where you got our attention, we sat up and took notice. Your Holy Spirit was working in us, convicting us, drawing us to Christ. We repented of our sins and believed, and you gloriously saved us. It wasn't our doing, it wasn't our plans. We might have even been doing something that day that being saved was the last thing we had on our minds. And yet, we woke up lost that morning, but went to bed that night saved because of what you did. Lord, as the church, may we not allow anything happening in the world. To hinder the message that you've given us to communicate. May that always be a priority to us. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. And Lord, help us to examine our lives to see if we might be doing something that will actually hinder the message you won't Father, I pray for that one right now. Maybe somebody watching online. That your Holy Spirit's been convicting them, drawing them to faith in Christ. May they humble themselves and come to you. May they give up thinking that salvation has anything to do with their wisdom or strength or plans. May they humbly trust Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing a hymn of